This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading this edition of Eye on Education. On the programme today, we focused on the teaching of tech in schools. Are our children being adequately prepared for work in the gig economy and life in the metaverse? We spoke to Claire Turnbull, the principal of Royal Grammar School, Dubai, and also to Dr. Sonia Ben-Jafar, CEO of the Abdullah al Ghareh Foundation for Education, one of the largest privately funded philanthropic education initiatives in the Arab world. And as take-up at Dubai universities increases by 3.6%, we found out why. Have the facilities improved or are more teens choosing to live at home? We heard from Dr Nitesh Sugnani, who is Director of Higher Education for the KHDA. Plus, in our My Classroom feature, we crossed live to a school deep in the jungle in Indonesia to talk to the founder, Rio Gerzi, about why they don't approve of homework. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and welcome back uh, to Eye on Education. This is our chance to pick through some of the main education stories of the week. And Andrew Hosey has joined me in the studio uh, to talk through basically the top headlines so that we get a good sort of breast of most of the education stories that have yep. been around this week. Um, let's start with a report on social media use amongst young children. Yes. Now, this is a story from the United Kingdom and the Office of Communications there. They do an annual study on media use and this year their major findings include that children as young as five are using social media. This is despite most platforms having a 13 and over age policy. A third of parents of five to sevens and two thirds of parents of eight to elevens said their kids do have social media profiles. Older children are more likely to have a profile on Instagram, while children aged 8 to 11 more likely to have profiles on TikTok and YouTube. Now, this is interesting because I think we spoke to TikTok, uh, their safety council, a little bit earlier on the show at the start last month, I think it was. We absolutely did, yes. And they were uh, saying that they were imposing new safety measures. They are ones uh, that have the 13 and over policy, but uh, clearly children are getting on there below that age. It's thought that many children could also be using private social media accounts. Uh, They're called Finsters, fake Instagram accounts that their parents don't know about to hide aspects of their online lives, which is, of course, worrying. Wow. Yeah, that is indeed. That's very nerve wracking, Um, especially. I mean, I've got an eight year old and a seven year old and they are pretty astute at getting around the blocks that I put on the iPad. Uh, I have discovered that the best way to stop them is just to take the iPad away because that's the only certainty I have that they're not messing around on it. Uh, We will be looking into this more uh, with Claire Turnbull, who is the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. She'll be joining us shortly. Uh, What else has been hitting the headlines? Dubai Cares has launched a new initiative placing children and youth at the centre of human development and revolutionising education. It was announced by His Excellency Dr Tarek Al-Gurg, the CEO and Vice Chairman of Dubai Cares. This was at the World World Government Summit recently. It's going to be fully unveiled on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. This is happening in September. It aims to put humanity back at the heart of education, catering to the future needs of children. And it looks to focus on out-of-school children as well. Now, these are kids that aren't able to enrol in formal education for a variety of reasons, home life, poverty, uh, distance, etc., etc. So it's looking on how they can be brought in to the education system in some way. Fantastic. That sounds very interesting indeed. Uh, we have requested an interview with His Excellency uh, Dr. Tarek Al-Gurg. Um, uh, he has, of course, experienced uh, a... Um, a loss in the family um, and as a consequence won't be doing any interviews uh, for the next few days of course uh, because a family member has died. Um, Moving on to another Dubai-based education story uh, and one we will be discussing in detail just after midday is that uh, international higher education institutions in the city, uh, universities, have reported a growth in student numbers and that's according to the KHDA. Dubai's higher education institutions say 3.6% increase. That's uh, with more than 29,000 students attending university programs. And as you mentioned, we'll be discussing this in greater detail 
after 12. We will indeed, yeah. We're going to be, um, we're also going to welcome uh, Dr. Nitesh Shukshuk. Sugani. Now, he is Director of Higher, of higher Education for the KHDA, uh, and we'll be hearing from him at 11.50. So don't go anywhere. He's got some very interesting insights as to why those numbers have uh, gone up uh, so sharply. Uh, meanwhile, Abu Dhabi University and the Zakat Fund have launched a charitable initiative. This is to raise money to help hundreds of local and expat students in the UAE who may be facing financial problems in completing their studies. This is called Our Youth, Our Responsibility, our Zakat, our Immunity Initiative, which is now in its 12th year since its launch. Since it's launched, it's raised more than 71 million dirhams and extended financial aid to over 3,500 students. This year, the fund is aiming to help out 500 deserving students who are eligible Zakat recipients. Okay, now let's link back to a story that we were discussing earlier this week with uh, Stephen Jang from CNN in Beijing. Uh, Of course, there's been this shutdown in Beijing of both sides of the city. Uh, The eastern side was shut down and until today and then today the western side is going into a lockdown uh, i mean obviously schooling must have been affected there uh, and with a population of 26 million people that is a lot of children missing out on education yeah and it, it actually got me thinking about um, how many people around the world are still being affected uh, with the closure of schools how many countries do still have restrictions in place for attending schools. I found an interesting report, actually. It's just been released by UNICEF, and it does have some incredibly worrying statistics. So 23 countries, this is home to around 405 million schoolchildren. They're yet to fully open schools. Uh, Many schoolchildren are at risk of dropping out basically due to the, the length of time that they haven't been going to school. So the, the report called Are Children Really Learning features data on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and school closures on children, as well as an updated analysis of children's learning, how it worked before the pandemic. And it points out that 147 million children missed more than half of their in-person schooling over the past two years. Wow. Now, this equates to, wait for it, two trillion hours of lost in-person learning globally. I mean, this is... This is just going to have a massive impact going forward. I mean, it's one thing for the children to to miss out now, but if they don't ever catch up on that schooling, then we're going to be left with this massive generational gap. And, of course, the problem is that for many children, if they drop out, Mm. depending on their age and especially their gender, because this happens mostly with girls, sometimes they, they never go back, do they? That's what this report is highlighting. It's a worrying trend. And you can see how it would happen, especially those that have had two years without formal education. Um, And in developing countries. And in developing countries where uh, other things then start taking priority, just surviving. Mm -hmm. Um, And also that impacts on their social well-being as well. Interaction between uh, adults at school, different adults uh, compared to their family backgrounds and also interaction with their peers in a learning environment. That's all going to be affected as well. It really is. I mean, some of these stats, um, I'm cheating, I'm looking ahead at your notes here, but some of the stats are quite staggering, Um, in particular in Uganda. Yes. Uh, there was, uh, so I'm stealing your notes here. One in 10 school children didn't go back to school in Jan after schools were closed for two years. Uh, Malawi, the dropout rate among girls in secondary education increased by 48%. I mean, that's massive. And in Kenya, it's a similar picture. 16% of girls and 8% of boys did not return when schools reopened. Um, there's an interesting link here with mm. the Dubai Cares Initiative that we've just been talking about, uh, because of course they're trying to bring out of children who are no longer in school, you know, they're trying to provide them with opportunities to learn, aren't they? Yes, they are the least likely to be able to read, write or do basic maths. They're cut off from the safety net that schools provide, which does put them at an increased risk of exploitation and um, a lifetime of poverty and deprivation. So the report highlights that while out-of-school children suffer the greatest loss, pre-pandemic data from 32 countries and territories shows a desperately poor level of learning. So it existed well before the pandemic came in, obviously exacerbating that situation This uh, due to the pandemic. In countries analysed, the current pace of learning is 
so slow that it would take seven years for most school children to learn foundational reading skills that should have been grasped in two years and 11 years to learn foundational numeracy skills. Now, I got in touch with UNICEF last night in New York and hopefully we'll be able to uh, follow up on this at some point in the very near future and have a yeah. discussion with them about it. Yeah, it'd be great to get them on the radio. Uh, and finally, last week, uh, in, in another rather depressing piece of news, uh, of course, the Taliban announced that they weren't going to allow older girls to return to secondary school in Afghanistan. Uh, they had previously promised that it would happen, uh, but there has now been a little bit more of a reaction to that. It really felt like a spot decision. Everyone was stunned by it, not least the aid agencies involved in you know, trying to bring these children back to school. It- did come out very suddenly on the morning where it was all meant to be going back to some kind of normalcy. Um, The Taliban has since then um, explained a little bit more about their decision. There has been reaction, of course. The World Bank has now recently suspended four products that they were going to implement in Afghanistan. They were worth $600 million, so 2.2 billion dirhams worth of investment from the World Bank. These projects aimed to include improving education, health and agriculture, which which does seem rather unfortunate that those projects are going to be cut or put on hold for the moment. They said that they have a strong focus on ensuring that girls and women participate and benefit from the support. So perhaps that's uh, why they're saying that they wouldn't the, the benefits that they were hoping to bring in wouldn't be seen by the people that they were intended to benefit. The Taliban says that schools will only reopen after a decision on uniforms for female students had been made in accordance with Sharia law and Afghan tradition. That's their quote. So that's what they say the sticking point is. Uh, the move has, as we know, drawn international condemnation. On Saturday, protesters gathered close to the Ministry of Education in the country's capital, in that's Kabul, to demand that the schools are reopened. So many men with such strong opinions about what women should wear. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back. Now, a school in Dubai that's scheduled to open in September has announced it'll allow parents to pay tuition fees using cryptocurrencies. Uh, The UK curriculum school is called Citizens School and it will accept Bitcoin and Ether. Now, in many ways, to me, that sounds like something of a gimmick, but it did get us thinking about how schools are harnessing the tech of the future. And it certainly shows, I suppose, a willingness for really regional educators to adopt new technology. So how do schools in the UAE manage to keep ahead of the curve when it comes to teaching tech to their children? And how are our children being adequately prepared for work in the gig economy and life in the metaverse? To give us an insight on primary education, we are joined now on the line by Claire Turnbull. She's the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello, Claire. How are you? Good morning, Georgia. I'm fine. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. In the next sort of few minutes or so, just after half past 11, we're also going to be turning our attention to sort of young sort of youth and teenagers as well with Sonia Ben-Jaffa, who's from the Abdullah Al-Ghuria Foundation for Education. But we really wanted to get a sort of double pronged insight, if you know what I mean. Uh, So we wanted to hear, you know, how it all starts, essentially. I mean, when do you start teaching children how to use computers so here at the royal grammar school we we start really early on because here we see computers and computing as an integral part of education um and on our ideal world is where children just see us as one of the many natural tools so we have ipads in our fs classrooms but most of the days the children won't use them at all but occasionally they'll be there and they'll be used for specific activities we bring in uh bbots uh and programming bbots in fs1 and fs2 as well so that 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 real third language of uh of programming is it just builds up alongside the children so it is as young as that it makes me feel like such an old person (laughs) (laughs) i mean like a real like Luddite, like my dad, basically, like, you know, like sort of fat finger, what do I press here? Um, when yep. you describe B-bots and programming and coding, because when 
I mean, I'm 43. When I learned about computers at school, it was a black screen with green ciphers. And that was when I was 10. And now, of course, now, of course, our children know how to use iPads almost instinctively. Um, But but what's interesting is so I've got a seven year old and an eight year old. And what's interesting is my eight year old knows how to use my laptop, but my seven year old still doesn't. So and I was quite interested that there was that still that divide. So they do still need to be taught to a certain extent how to learn you know, how to use a computer. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there are the, uh, there's the programming side, there's, you know, now the AI side and all of that, the the nuance even more from programming um, and machine learning, etc. But there is also the the practical side of file management and uh, and learning how to use a uh, a laptop so that it aids your learning and uh, and enhances your life rather than it either owns you or you still can't find that document when you want to do it. So yeah, uh, we bring in the the secretarial sides of it of file management and uh, the really important side of digital safety. That's right the way through. Um, but it's also alongside the more technical side of um, uh, of programming. We also encourage our children to learn how to touch type because I don't know about you. Um, I spend most of my day on the computer, but I'm still don't touch type. And I, I'm in awe of those people who do and who are able to uh, to make it really easy for themselves. Same with voice recognition software. All of these things are there to help. And if we're focusing all the time on what's going to make the children's learning better, more deeper, more successful and more time effective, then we're getting them ready for the world ahead. How about the more complicated technology, you know, coding and robotics? Do you later on when they're a bit bigger, do they have specific lessons in those? You know, maths, science, robotics. I I don't even know what coding... (laughs) Yeah, no, we we bring it all under um, computer science uh, uh, and computing that we interweave. So we've got that interwoven in every subject and we teach it discreetly. So it's uh, it's dual prong always so that it is taught through every subject. But some of the technical aspects of the programming uh, we teach in a discrete subject. And that starts from as young as year one. I mean, how do you keep up with your computer literate students? I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, my children, like I say, seven and eight, already attempting to hack into anything. Uh, and I know that there is a program on my son's iPad that enables his teacher to see at all times what he's doing. However, he has figured out that if he swipes on and off that four or five times very quickly, there is a blip of about 10 minutes when the teacher's iPad has to catch up. And during those 10 minutes, he can play Minecraft. Now, if, if my boy aged eight has managed to hack that already, uh, I mean, goodness knows it's going to be Tesla next. Um, but but, but you, in that way, how do you keep up with your kids? <laughs> I think it's about always having a conversation with them and including them. So obviously there's our staff expertise. They are constantly making sure they're ahead of the game. Um, and But it's talking to the children of it not necessarily being something that they want to need to hack all the time. Um, <laughs> I will never forget my one of my first um, online safety talks to parents back in the UK. And we were talking about different uh, safety pr- programs that they could install and we had a really great conversation. And then the last bit, one of the parents said, that's great. I'll take it home and I'll get my eight year old to install it because I don't know how to. Um, and we have to embrace that our young people have such a uh, an easy way of learning. So it's about having um, uh, conversations with them so they openly talk about it and they have opportunities. We don't shut everything down. We've got to keep them safe. Absolutely. Um, But if we explain to children why we're keeping them safe, why they can't do certain things, then I think it's great. But as we all know, don't we, that if as soon as you make something taboo, it becomes even more attractive to children and they're going to want to find a way to do it. Same, perhaps with adults. So it's about having that honest conversation with them. I mean, I do find it very hard to tell my children to stay off the iPads all the time when, let's be honest, they see me on my phone 
constantly. I mean, I got my screen time report just recently and the amount of hours I spend a day on just my phone. I mean, I know the rest of the time I'm on my, I'm on my laptop. It, it's, it's genuinely horrifying. Uh, Claire Turnbull, as always, thank you so much for your insights on this. Uh, I, I've learned a lot about what they're learning in school, so that's very encouraging. Thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure. Look forward to speaking soon. Thank you very much. That's Claire Turnbull, of course, the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7. Hello there and welcome back. Right, let's move on to discuss how we can best prepare our teens and young adults for the gig economy. As of course, it evolves at pace around them. Uh, I'm joined in the studio now by Dr. Sonia Benjafar, who is CEO of the Abdullah al Ghariya Foundation for Education, which is one of the largest privately funded philanthropic education initiatives in the Arab world. It is a great pleasure to have you live in the studio with me. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sonia. Thank you for having me. And it's a great view from here. Well, it's interesting you mention that because up until this morning, there was a huge poster covering the window for Expo 2020 and they have released it. And now we have we have light. This is one of those wonderful gospel moments. We have light. It's very, very exciting. So thank you. Yes. And it is still exciting for us to have guests back in the studio post COVID. Um, Let's have a little bit of a chat about uh, the inclusion of digital skills at a higher education level. Because I would presume that it was just taught as a sort of, you know, as a, as a natural evolution of education, that it was presumed that they'd reached a certain level of educational standard when it came to digital skills, but that, that le- those lessons needed to continue. You're about to tell me I can imagine that that is not the case. Um, well, part of it is is true, and they definitely need to enter university knowing how to do the very basics, using a computer or a tablet, getting online, um, especially over the last uh, couple of years where they've had to do a lot of their learning online and getting into their learning modules that way. Um, But there's also another level of it that is in need of work, um, and that is the the evolution of digital skills and, and what it means in the industry has evolved quite quickly and has been evolving quite quickly and continues to. We have uh, you know artificial intelligence, we have UX design that's ne- necessary, you know um, agile learning. So there's so much. And when our graduates are actually entering the workforce, when they become you know that newest version of an alumni, they're entering the workforce and being. Um, asked for pieces that they're simply uncomfortable with because they're busy learning their curriculum. They're busy learning their materials um, within uh, more traditional ways of learning. And now they're entering a workforce that's very fast-paced and there's an industri- there's a, a 4IR revolution that is simply demanding from them things that they are not ready for yet. And so we definitely need to infuse a lot more digital skills upskilling within that um, university campus, but also all higher education campuses. I can imagine that happening, oddly enough. I did English Lit. So as you can imagine, I literally had no, there was no contact with tech at all, except when I was writing my essays on a laptop. And do you know what? Quite a lot of people still wrote them by hand 20, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, so, I mean, do you think that the higher education institutions, that the universities are keeping up with this changing face of tech? Do you think they realise yet that they are maybe not preparing young people quickly enough for this gig economy? Well, we definitely have some universities that are very much ahead of the game. Um, We have the University of AI, for example, in in Dubai um, and the UAE looking forward. But we also have universities that are struggling. It's not that the technology is not there, but the human capital investment hasn't been made with the the technical investment. Um, for example, uh, at the foundation, we have partnered with the American University of Beirut in um, forming a hub there so that they can start looking at their engineering programs and building uh, online courses because it's not about trying to take that face-to-face experience of an in in classroom experience in a course and putting it online. That's not what this is about. It's about really reimagining how we can learn in an in a online space. 
And so that's what the hub is doing. And they've already launched a few courses. And they're taking those pieces with us and taking the learning and spreading it through the region. We're also working with nine universities in the UAE to help them also um, upgrade their online offerings. And this is in partnership with the Ministry of Education as well. So you have all the right players trying hard to actually move that forward. Okay, so what if your child has just graduated or graduated a couple of years ago and you're thinking, oh my goodness, but they missed out on all of this. They don't know how to do AI. They don't know what, I don't even know what they don't want don't know because it's beyond me as well. Um, and there is this, I, I, I suppose there has been this surge in ed tech. So should, should as a parent, should you be encouraging your children to, to seek out these courses online or, or is that really the responsibility of the employer? I think that there's uh, a gap that is between the employer and higher ed. Um, so I, it's the responsibility of both, I would say. And as a as a parent of, of a young graduate or soon-to-be graduate, I would say, you know, work on understanding their purpose and getting them to understand what they value. The courses are out there. Moreover, um, what's really interesting is of the digital skills that you're learning now, the half-life is actually three to five years. So (laughs) that's a depressing statistic. It is. So you've got to relearn every three to five years or or I suppose upskill constantly. Yeah. Yeah, So then the idea is really just to make sure that you're doing that in a place of um, doing what you love so that it doesn't feel like this burden, but part of what you're doing. And then that just integrates into lifelong learning so that you can do well. So, for example, we at the foundation have launched Tech Up with Udacity, and we are going to be um, helping uh, upskill 20,000 Emiratis in the UAE to digitally upskill with this program. And it's very specific. And we already we launched it three weeks ago, and we already have almost 500 people registered for the courses. And so people are interested and excited, um, and some of them are recent graduates. I have to say, during the pandemic, I had a good six months when I wasn't working a great deal. And at that stage, I definitely started looking at potential courses to to upskill myself. And, you know, there is a certain feeling of sort of satisfaction in this concept of lifelong learning. I mean, it's quite easy to feel lazy about it as well. But I I mean, this lack of digital skills, is, is it being particularly felt in certain industries here in the UAE? Uh, most certainly. I mean, we, we do see a difference between kind of that, the industries where you do have the physical, the tactile, the in-your-face pieces. But we do have a lot of industries that we thought would stay that way and that have moved. And retail is the classic example that most people can think of. I mean, most people don't go shopping in a store for everything anymore, um, especially groceries, for example. We are, are, we've moved our own habits And so the way um, the background to that has a whole different kinds of salespeople around it, for example. We have a different set of individuals who need to understand how to develop the programs that go behind that, but also how to understand the data so that they can take it from data to information to make some intelligent decisions about how to source the quote-unquote stores or what people are going to be ordering um, so that we don't have those gaps. I mean, that is what's so amazing about everything going online is that there is just so much data and and people need to learn how to process that. And I imagine there are programs and there's artificial intelligence that can run through this reams of information and, and then come out with a result that you can then use to better market your products. Right. But one of the the people who I, I work with and who, who's actually much more knowledgeable about the details of this in terms of the science of it um, once told me and it's stuck, um, artificial intelligence is only as good as the human intelligence behind it. And so that's what we're about. We're trying to build that human capital. Uh, earlier this week, you spoke about the importance of strategic partnerships at the World Government Summit, which, of course, was a very exciting event. Uh, all the big hitters were there, plus 4,000 delegates. I mean, how can strategic partnerships accelerate this digital gap? How important it is, is it to pair up with the private sector? Well, I think that one of the biggest things that came out of the World Government Summit was the idea that we simply cannot do it alone. And that's something that's, you know, become very, very evident. The private sector 
is part of the solution, period. Um, So is um, every other sector, the public sector, um, academia. We must work together. But rather than working together in a transactional way, opportunistically, program by program, we need to actually set a strategy and work together. And that's what the sustainable development goals are supposed to underpin. And so the idea behind it is let's make a partnership ecosystem that makes sense, that is value-driven, where we actually have each other's backs, so to speak, versus just a transactional piece of you're a vendor, you know, and and so I need you for now, but I might not need you later. Rather, let's try and get this um, to come together. Amazing to speak to you uh, and to have you in the studio. Thank you so much for your time and insights. Uh, it really has been a pleasure. Uh, Dr. Sonia, Dr. Sonia Ben-Jafar, who is CEO of the Abdullah al Ghurir Foundation for Education. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back. Now, international higher education institutions in Dubai have reported significant growth in the numbers of their students. That's according to new data from the KHDA, which, of course, is Dubai's Knowledge and Human Development Authority. Uh, They reported an annual enrolment growth of 3.6%, which means that they now have more than 29,000 students currently involved in university programmes. The surge in student numbers is largely driven by an increase in international students travelling to Dubai for better higher education choices. That's according to the KHDA. Uh, Dubai is currently home to 34 international higher education institutions uh, that provide more than 600 programmes. And apparently more than one in four students comes from outside the UAE. That's at 28% in total. Now, earlier today, we spoke to Dr. Nitesh Sugani, who is director Director of Higher Education for the KHDA. And I asked him, why are universities in the UAE attracting more students? Uh, Higher education in Dubai is now in a growth phase. Uh, From a regulatory perspective, we've spent the last few years attracting high quality institutions from around the world. We've recently also reduced the paperwork and time needed to open an international campus in Dubai. Uh, We've put in place some quality assurance mechanisms like the higher education classification, which gives students and parents a very easy to understand method uh, to learn about uh, international universities in Dubai. These processes all work to ensure that students receive world-class education here. Add to that, of course, is Dubai itself. Uh, We live in a dynamic, safe and future-focused city uh, and young people are attracted to that and want to be a part of it. Nearly 25% of students are studying part-time So they're already working in Dubai. And I think we'll see growth in enrollment in this area as people focus on developing their skills and careers here. I also asked Dr. Signani, to what extent has COVID-19 had an impact on student registration here in the United Arab Emirates? Uh, When many cities in the world were locked down, Dubai began to open. Uh, When education was taking place remotely in most parts of the world, uh, university and school students in Dubai were back to -to face-to-face learning. In uncertain times, students need as much certainty as they can get. And the way the government in Dubai handled the pandemic certainly inspired a lot of confidence in students that their education could and would continue. Uh, The pandemic also made people realize how important it is to be close to family and friends in times of need. Uh, With Dubai being an international hub, it's not really far from anywhere. So students feel confident that they can come here, get a high quality education uh, and still be able to visit their home countries quite regularly. So what do universities here in the UAE offer students? Uh, The sector in Dubai is maturing. Uh, International universities here in Dubai do not receive financial support from the government. So they have to come up with creative and innovative ways uh, to set them apart from their competition. For some universities, this has meant uh, moving into a new campus with world-class facilities. Uh, Other institutions have increased their program offering and uh, are starting to offer more specialized programs, while some have increased exchange opportunities with their home campuses. Each international university in Dubai is unique. That was Dr. Nitesh Sugnani, who is, of course, Director of Higher Education for the KHDA. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. 
Hello there and a very warm welcome back to the show. This is our special Ion Education segment. Now, Dubai's international higher education institutions have registered an annual enrolment growth of 3.6% with more than 29,000 students currently enrolled in university programs. That's according to a new study by the KHDA. Now, Dubai is currently home to 34 international universities that provide more than 600 programs. And the KHDA say one in four students actually come from outside the United Arab Emirates. Business, information technology and engineering remain the top three programme choices for students. IT saw the biggest increase in student enrolments in the last five years, followed by law and humanities and health medicine. So what is it that the universities are getting so right? Uh, joined on the line now by two professionals who are going to give us their insights on the matter. Uh, Hugh Martin is the Registrar and Chief Administration, Administrative Officer at the British University in Dubai. And Dr. Cody Paris is the Deputy Director of Academic Planning and Research at Middlesex University, Dubai, and also an Associate Professor of Social Science. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us on the line. Hello. Hello, Good thank morning. you for having us. Hello, indeed. Uh, fantastic to have you both on Microsoft Teams. Um, okay, so I'm going to start uh, with Dr. Cody Paris, please. Are there any specific reasons, do you think, that students are attracted to Dubai's educational institutions? Well, I think it's one thing if you look at Dubai itself, you know, over the last uh, 15 years, it's developed. Middlesex here has been here for 17 years we see that Dubai has emerged as a global hub for international education. And it's the, you know, I, I did a study actually a couple of years pre-pandemic with some colleagues where we looked at some of the motivations for students that are being attracted to Dubai. Um, one is, I think, the, the safety, the stability, the high standard of living, um, that more, very cosmopolitan place to live where we have, I think the KHCA there has more than 169 nationalities. So that day in, day out experience that you have. So I think Dubai as a destination is very much an attraction to students. Um, and then if we look at the, the other component of that post-graduation is the, the employment opportunities. I think that if we see the, um, the, the future and the direction that we've all experienced, um, that uh, the International students see Dubai as a great place to come and study, but also the potential for the opportunities post-graduation are, are very exciting, I think, in attracting students. And we've seen the some of the recent um, you know, changes and shifts in um, the visas that offer students opportunities to come in and um, stay and be able to work. And even more recently this year, the um, while they're studying, they can attain part-time work. Um, while they're while they're here, I think that ability to gain that experience with all the the dynamic industry that's being developed here. You highlighted some of the areas like information technology and, um, of course, business. But that financial, logistics, tourism hub of the world is is very attractive to those students coming in. Uh, Hugh Martin at the British University in Dubai, have you seen your numbers increase for those reasons as well? I think so. And I think, uh, you know, Cody's absolutely right. If we look back, I mean, we're, we're very similar to Middlesex. We're just coming up to our 20th year in in uh, Dubai. And I think there's there's one other, I should mention, the University of Wollongong in Dubai, which is 26 years now. So there's, you know, there's a bit of history. And Cody's mentioned why for for many years people have come to Dubai. What I, what I like to stress is that the numbers are rising a little bit this year. Let's put a caveat on that. Of course, they dipped during the pandemic as they did around the world. But there is another reason why Dubai is now a focus, which is the, and I'll be very frank with you, I'm British, I'm actually talking to you from Scotland right now where I'm uh, here on conference. Um, look, we've been really well looked after in the UAE during the pandemic, uh, Dubai particularly, but the rest of the UAE as a whole, the vaccines, the lockdown that worked, the apps that worked, the mask wearing that people adhered to. We've been a very safe and secure environment and our the government of the various Emirates have been really studious in making sure that people are safe within the, within the Emirates. And I think now that the, the world is beginning to recover, it's not over, but we're beginning to, to, to see some light of day. Students and their families particularly see Dubai as an opportunity uh, somewhere that's bouncing back a lot quicker than other places. And I'll freely admit, you know, the UK, where I am now, is not as quick to recover. So I think when people are, you know, people vote with their feet. And when students are looking at where uh, they feel like studying, where it's safe to come to, where the airports are open again, where the environment is um, very good healthcare, as we know, all of these play a part in the most recent uh, upsurge in numbers. 
I mean, are the prices competitive? That that's the big question. You've got one in. Uh, so you've got twenty eight percent of students are coming from abroad. So already they're spending money to get here to set themselves up. They're obviously not living at home. Um, to what extent is is Dubai getting it right? And and are you, you the private universities uh, getting the pricing right? Uh, Dr. Paris, I'll start with you. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. If you look at, you know, we always see the, the news reports of the different cost of living indices across the world that um, Dubai actually, when compared to other, say, leading international education hubs, whether it's New York or San Francisco or uh, London or, or, or Melbourne, the cost of living here is actually very, very affordable. Um, and if we look at the, the pricing on the tuition side of things, um, I think for many of the international universities, the price point available here um, in Dubai is actually very competitive, if not even less than uh, maybe some of the other um, international locations. I know that this is true among many of the UK-based universities. So I think that overall cost of living for a student is affordable when compared against some of these um, other international uh, settings. Um, of course, we all remember back to our, our student days and that budget living. And um, so I think that perception of Dubai as being an overly expensive location um, is, is kind of uh, a miss. Uh, uh, in this case, that it's actually quite an affordable place when compared against some of these other locations. I have to say, I, I am surprised to, to hear that. Uh, Hugh Martin, do your students seem to find it affordable? Do you have special student accommodation and things for them? Yeah, actually, interesting. For us, we don't. So we are um, unusual in a sense, we, as you mentioned, private, but also Dubai government. And actually around half of our students are Emirati. So, you know, we have a, a good mix of local as well as uh, international um, and regional students but we're not having to put them up or they're not having to stay with us and put it that way um, so they're, they're staying at home they're, they're living with families who are already here um, we see much less of the international student as I think of them uh, in, in other parts of the world who are coming on their own without any connections or family or support network uh, and I think that is that is more difficult, if I'm honest. In the, uh, and Cody's right, of course, that the the, you know, the idea that everyone in, in Dubai lives a five-star millionaire lifestyle, those of us in education would tell you that's not true. Um, but but it's um, I think it is a lot easier for international students who already have some support network here. Um, fees are competitive. Um, I think there is also the issue around visas. I know that's been mentioned, but it's not so much the cost of visa, it's the ability to get one. And again, I think of the difficulties for students getting into my own country in the UK, uh, using a points-based system, which Australia use, it's very difficult in the US. So a large number of students from places like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, China, Dubai is a very attractive option, and, and now increasingly West Africa as well, because the visa is easier to get hold of, and then they can focus their time on the studies that they do here. Uh, and the option, of course, and I would make a plug here for Middlesex as well as ourselves and other British universities, Many of us offer them the chance, if they're good enough and their grades are good enough, to study with us for a year or two and then move to one of our UK partners or our UK bases to finish their studies, which is a hugely attractive option for international students as well. I love how, I love how much you like each other. I thought it would be really competitive. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Paris, carry on. No, I just wanted to say that I, I agree in that, um, you know, we are looking at how we can also help international students as this growth continues. That is a, a definite growth market for us. So, for example, um, we offer a partnership with, with our, our um, international student residences located out near Academic City. And we've just actually opened up another uh, small campus uh, annex out there as well for um, to cater to these students. So we offer that really attractive package of accommodation and, and, and um, tuition, which you would find at many international destinations around the world to help um, ease that affordability. Um, and uh, so I think there is that opportunity to to bring um, international students and continue to to grow. I think that's, you know, if we look at um, some of the new opening markets, we have quite a few students now that are starting to check us out coming from, you know, South America, you know, the, the anywhere that Emirates flies is a potential market. Um, as we look to, to move forward. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
Hello there and welcome back to the programme. Yes, we are in the midst of discussing the fact that Dubai's universities have registered an annual enrolment growth of 3.6%. They now have uh, more than 29,000 students currently enrolled in university programmes. We are discussing this topic with Hugh Martin, who's the Registrar and Chief Administrative Officer at the British University in Dubai. And also with Dr Cody Paris, who is the Deputy Director of Academic Planning and Research at Middlesex. University of Dubai. And before I uh, left the line, I, I promised that I was going to ask the rather thorny question of whether or not the quality of teaching here in the UAE uh, is, is comparable to standards elsewhere in the world. Now, uh, are, we, are we keeping up, uh, Dr. Paris? Yes, absolutely. I don't think that's a, a thorny uh, question at all. I think that's one that, um, you know, I know myself uh, and, and Middlesex were very proud of the efforts that we put into ensuring a a teaching and learning experience that is um, very vibrant, innovative, um, constantly looking at how we can involve, you know, evolve and, and, and um, develop our pedagogical practices. And I think that that is something that if we look at Dubai and having the conversation of attracting students, it's also a place that is attracting, you know, high quality academics and teachers. It's a fantastic place to teach and to work. Um, there are also some benefits. You know, I, I came here from a, a very large international university that had more than 100,000 students in the U.S. 12 years ago. And um, I think here, the, the fantastic, even as a, being a very large institution locally, we have 4,000 students, that student experience is very kind of intimate. That interaction with the faculty is very close. Um, and that is something that in um, sometimes in, in other locations and larger campuses is difficult to maintain. And so there's really a benefit, I think, for students studying here that get that um, that level of interaction with the faculty that is um, really a, a highlight of our of, um, studying at a, at a campus here in Dubai. Um, Hugh Martin, I think I was probably the, in fact, I know I was the final year to go to university in the UK. I was the final year that didn't have to pay. Uh, everybody else from then on has had to pay something. And, and obviously the fees are quite high now in the UK. I mean, is that is that the situation everywhere in the world now? Is it pretty much impossible to get a, a free higher education? Not, not, not entirely impossible. It just makes me realise I'm exactly the same age as you, Georgia, but um, I, I'm wearing it less, less well than you are. Um, There's a lot of no. filters. There's a lot of filters on this camera, believe me. <laughs> but, I mean, joking aside, there are, you know... The UK situation is nowhere near as, uh, as expensive as, say, North America, where the universities are all private. Of course, in the UK, universities are all public, bar a couple. Um, but still, most of mainland Europe, of course, uh, fees are free, especially in Scandinavian countries. They're free not just for their own na uh, nationals, but for others visiting. So, you know, it is still a very different market in Europe compared to North America, uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, so, yes, fees are still, I, I think it is a thorny issue. I might disagree with, with Cody there. I think there is an existential problem for a branch campus. Now, Middlesex is one. We're not. We're our own university in Dubai. And that is whether they can or indeed should provide the same experience as they would back home. My argument would be that actually that's a bit of a false analogy because you can't provide the same experience. You provide a different one as, as long as the quality is high. And I think, again, going back to the, what strides the UAE has made, the CAA, which is the part of the Department of Education, Ministry of Education in the UAE, mm -hmm. which looks after quality, has made a real push recently to bring in international quality standards. For example, the QA, the Quality Assurance Agency in the UK, which is world renowned, is now coming across to the UAE and doing a large number of international reviews of universities to make sure the quality is high. And at my own university, we already use the British system, as we, you would expect from our name. We use British external examiners for our PhDs. We use colleagues from Russell Group universities in the UK and elsewhere, Ivy League um, in the US, Group of Eight in Australia, to make sure now, our quality is at the level that our students can expect because they are paying fees. And as you say, once they start paying, changes the dynamic from what was a student for you and I. We went for other reasons, perhaps. Now families, parents, students themselves are investing money and they expect some kind of return for that, even though those of us in education try very hard to explain you're not buying a product, you're not a customer, it's not a car that you can return when it doesn't work. But still, that dynamic has changed over time and once money changes hands, the onus is on us to make sure the value they get, uh, the experience that they have, as Cody said, has to be the best we can offer, but in a different environment. You know, Dubai is not London. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, the experience is always going to be different. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I did English Lit. I had four lectures a week. 
Uh, and uh, I mean, <laughs> certainly uh, my parents would not have been happy to pay £20,000, say, you know, 100,000 dirhams for those four lectures a week where I was one out of 100 in, in, a, in a room. Um, so, yes, I can imagine that, that there are nuances <laughs> there to, to it not being a product necessarily, but certainly wanting a return on investment. Uh, I mean, is there a good variety of courses here? So if there's a parent listening to this thinking the last thing I want to do during a pandemic, because although it feels like it's over here, it isn't over everywhere else. You know, the last thing I want to do is send away my child and there to be problems, you know, with getting them backwards and forwards or what if the university there closes? You know, would you say that there is enough uh, choice here in the UAE, uh, Dr. Paris? Yeah, absolutely. I think that if you look at even just the the KHCA report that came out, we saw quite a bit of growth in areas. Now, obviously, we have the the core areas of uh, business and, and IT, but even within IT, we're seeing you know programs in robotics and data science and AI emerging. Um, and more recently, you've seen even programs in the arts and creative industries that have seen quite a bit of, of growth. Um, and so I think that one of the things as, as the Dubai and the universities here have matured, the number of programs, the growth of programs and offering has continued to increase. And um, I think this is a, a great opportunity for people to um, really identify a program that they're of interest, there is going to be one um, here. I think it's, um, I even saw that even in the in the medical sciences, they're starting to emerge um, certain programs. So um, I think that for the vast majority of students, it, there will be an offer, um, an, an opportunity to study at a program here um, in the UAE. Um, and of course, there's continuing to grow. I think that these upward trajectories of student, of international students, of so the number of programs offered will continue to increase. Uh, do you use incentives to encourage people to come and study here, Hugh Martin? Do you, uh, you know, I, I, do you compete for enrolments with other establishments abroad by by you know, saying, you know, you can have a discount this, this term, for example? I think, yeah, I mean that is typical. I think of any. Uh privatized market where, where people are looking at what they value they can get for the fees that they're going to pay even if the fees are fairly similar all of us um, and i'm sure it's not just true of, of dubai it's, it certainly happens in abu dhabi in the northern emirates there are scholarships available there are discounts for siblings or family members there are uh, opportunities for people who have good grades to to pay less or to come in in certain circumstances entirely free so i mean that's quite normal and, and again i'm sure cody with north american experience this is this is quite typical to be fair um i think the cliche goes that almost nobody at harvard pays the full harvard fee because there are the, the the amount harvard posts is very different to what you'll actually pay based on all kinds of scholarships and um, discounts that you might get so look sure it's a, it's a it's part of the marketing that we do and although as you you know we, you said we were quite friendly actually it's a fairly friendly sector there there are certain things on which we compete but this is quite normal for us offering different tariffs different levels um it, it will attract a different kind of student the student that might want to go to middlesex might be different the student that might want to come to the british university in dubai i guess the only point i would make is going back if i may to what cody said i my, my word of caution would be around the width of courses available I know the KHDA has said, you know, there are 600 programs, but you need to take that with a little bit of uh, a pinch of salt because that's 600 programs in STEM, right? So what we in the sector call a full shopfront university, the kind that you and I went to, Georgia, I am also an English lit student, um, doesn't exist in the UAE. And the UAE has a very, I think, very laudable ambition to be a world leader in higher education in the next 50 years. And I, I praise that. I think that's an amazing ambition. The problem is there are at the moment no universities that offer arts and humanities in the way that we think of them in the West. So, yes, you can do a, vi- a wide variety of STEM subjects, but you can't do modern languages. You can't do classics. You can't do history. You can't do music. You can't do theatre, except in an NYU Abu Dhabi in a certain restricted way. So th- for, for the UAE to achieve this aim, and for students and their families to really have that full choice, there has to be a shift away from STEM. There has to be a movement to having full shopfront universities that allow students the full range of subjects. So if they want to be a physicist, fine. But if they want to take physics with Spanish, they can. If they want to look at classics and archaeology, they can. If they want to um, look at things like English Lit or in this case, Arabic literature or um, calligraphy or some of the things which go back to the, the history of Islam in this country, they should be able to do it at university. And that's my only concern about what will happen in the next few years. But I again agree with Cody. This is a a young market is developing all the time. And that ambition means, I hope, somebody will start to increase those courses in different universities, because my own university is a STEM university. We don't offer these subjects.
Really interesting conversation there, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure speaking to both of you. Hugh Martin is the Registrar and Chief Administration Officer at the British University in Dubai. And Dr. Cody Paris is the Deputy Director of Academic Planning and Research at Middlesex University, Dubai. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to U7. Hello there and welcome to Eye on Education. It is our chance to discuss the main uh, schools stories, university stories indeed, of the week. We run it every single Friday uh, from 11am until 1pm. And this one, particularly right now, is easily my favourite feature of the week because it is our chance to travel around the world, well, for me at least, sitting safely in the studio. It is time for my classroom uh, when we talk to a teacher from an unusual school in a different corner of the globe to find out what it's like in their school. And today we're joined uh, from the jungle. Uh, Rio Gerzi is the owner and founder of the Jungle School in Jawa Tenga in Indonesia. And thanks to the, the wonders of technology, which I'm always staggered by, uh, joins me now uh, live on Microsoft Teams. Hi, Rio. How are you? Hi, Georgia. Nice to meet you. An absolute pleasure. Yes, this is the first time and it really does feel like we are uh, meeting each other. Now, tell me a little bit more about where your school is located, because, of course, my description of it being in the jungle uh, has got everyone intrigued. Well, you're not wrong. Uh, Jungle School is located in the jungle in central Java. So we are just at the base of um, Merbabu Volcano, right in the middle of Java Island. Uh, We've got a hectare of land really just in the jungle. And that's where our kids spend their days. I mean, that just sounds so cool. Is this a jungle populated by lots of animals and insects and snakes (laughs) um two-footed human animals mostly but yes insects and snakes uh, quite a few of them there is uh, villages around us so we're not far from the city population but because we have so much land of our own there's uh, plenty of nature to be had Uh, i mean that just sounds absolutely amazing how many children do you have in your classroom Uh, I'm the founder, so I don't teach in a specific classroom, but in jungle school, we have about 150 students from 20 different countries. Uh, In one classroom, there's a maximum of of 15 students. Oh, wow. It's a much bigger school than I imagined. I kind of just thought that there would just be a couple of classrooms. But uh, I mean, and that's really interesting because you do have quite an alternative mission, don't you? We really do. Yeah. So talk me through a little bit about uh, how how you came up with that because I know basically I looked on your website and one of the first things I saw was a sentence that was like no homework and I was like right right well the kids would absolutely love that I've got a seven and eight year old they hate homework I hate homework our family hates homework so what is the but that is quite alternative for for a school now you're right and honestly uh, I have three kids of my own and when we built jungle school and designed it it was made the way I think every school in the world should be. It's made for children. Uh, They're the ones who have to be there every day. So we really design everything we do at Jungle School for kids in a way that kids learn naturally and based on what they want and what they like. So even our uh, electives and thematic units are based on their current interest. There's no homework. There's no exams. They only go to school half a day, so they have plenty of time to play and um, do their hobbies or learn a new skill. It's really just based on kids' needs and wants. Is that a sort of, I, I mean, uh, I excuse my lack of knowledge on this. I have sort of literally the sort of widest level, the sort of most macro knowledge on these things. Um uh, Montessori? Is that a sort of Montessori principle? I think most people would relate it as, yeah, as Montessori. It's We have our own methods, so uh, we're a little bit more wild than a Montessori school would be. Um, but yes, that's a good overall assumption. Yeah, lots of hands-on learning and lots of things to manipulate like a Montessori school. In practical terms, does that mean no desks and chairs? Absolutely. 
so we only need desks and chairs when we're sitting over a textbook or we're writing an essay, but our kids in the jungle are doing everything hands-on. They're making mistakes, they're falling down, they're being noisy, and they're learning the way kids naturally do. And what age group does this come up to? Because, of course, we all know that there's, I know that there's a big sort of thing in Sweden and, and Norway where children don't go to school, for example, until they're seven. And so things are sort of delayed as far as teaching, you know, reading and writing comes a little bit later on in those schools. But needless to say, those children end up doing just as well as children who are sort of grilled from the age of three or four. So when do you start the sort of numeracy skills, the, the, the literacy skills? So we start school at age two. We have from daycare all the way through elementary school and junior high school starting this year. But our literacy skills really start even when they're two, but not in the traditional way with a a pencil and paper. We do it through songs. We do it through making letters out of Play-Doh or drawing them in the sand or finding them in nature. Um, So we start really young, but it's never... Uh, black and white, like this never on paper, even bigger kids in elementary school, fifth and sixth graders, most of their work is done verbally or written on the floor with chalk so that we can erase it because we are a paperless school. Wow. So we start literacy skills young, but we don't push it. So you say you're a paperless school. Are you also a, a screenless school? So no iPads? Uh, no electricity, actually. So no yes, way. no iPads. That's so cool. No electricity. No, no electricity at all. And several of our classrooms are built out of recycled water bottles or repurposed materials. So we don't need lights either. Wow, that that really is intriguing. Um, Give me a little bit. I'm loving this. Give me a little bit of the outline of the school day. Like, so how it starts. I I know you only have half a day, but, but how does it all kick off? Okay, so uh, let's talk about elementary school because that's what most people picture when they think of school. So the kids come to school at 8 o'clock and they have 30 minutes to run around and play in the mud and fly through the trees and the crazy things they do to get their energy out uh, for 30 minutes. And then from 8.30 until 10 o'clock, they're in the classroom. But we have this idea that children should never be asked to sit or concentrate for more than two times their age. So if they are six, then 12 minutes is the longest activity we have. If they're 10, then 20 minutes is the longest activity. And we move on to something else. So uh, literacy could be 20 minutes, math could be 20 minutes, and that's it. And then we'll move on. So they rotate several activities throughout the day. And then they've got 45 minutes of playtime in the middle of the day where they play outside again. And grades one to six all play together. So they're learning to interact with children of different ages, um, to be patient or to try things that make them nervous. And they go home at 12 o'clock. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back. Yes, we are in the middle of Eye on Education and we're in the middle of our My Classroom feature uh, because we are joined on the line by Rio Gerzi, who is the owner and founder of the Jungle School in Jawa Tenga in Indonesia. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me on the line, for staying on the line. Uh, It's lovely to speak to you, Rio. Are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. That's very good news. Fantastic. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about the role that the school plays in the community, because uh, obviously Indonesia, Java is a very um, international community. Are most of the children Indonesian or are they from lots of different countries? So this year we have about 70% Indonesian students who locally live in our town and the rest are from 20 different countries all over the world. Um, as far as our role in the community, I think Right now, we play a big part in giving kids who would typically only have a really stiff and formal school experience kind of a new perspective on education and a new perspective on how far they can really go in reaching their dreams and their potential. And it's really changing the way that Indonesia as a whole looks at non-formal education as well. It's really interesting that the style of education is being embraced by Indonesians as well. I mean, I'm making presumptions based on your accent. Are you, are you from the United States or are you? I, yes, I'm, I'm from California. Sorry, I'm literally guessing. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, you could have gone, no, actually, I grew up in Indonesia and I'd be completely thrown. Um, I mean, so... 
Uh, so I'm quite intrigued that, that you wouldn't necessarily expect um, uh, quite a sort of uh, a, a less formal style of education maybe to be adopted in developing countries. Or is that me being you're really correct. like, oh, good. Oh, gosh. I thought no, for a moment. <laughs> the style of education in developing countries is very formal, especially in post-colonial countries like Indonesia. Uh, it's been left over from England and from the Netherlands, and it's very, very formal. So to um, now be on the successful end of this fight for Indonesia to kind of accept this crazy and fun way of educating children is is really rewarding, actually. It, it took quite a few years, but uh, we're really seeing a lot more Indonesian families accept and search for this kind of education now. And do you teach the American curriculum? Do you teach in, in English? We do teach in English because we think it gives uh, good skills to our local Indonesian students, and they'll be able to then compete in the international community when they go into the job force. And I mean, when you've got all the kids together, you know, it's 8am and they're all running around uh, in this wonderful hectare of land. I mean, are they getting grubby? Do you, do you have a school uniform? Like, it just sounds so extra to what kids normally do at school. <laughs> it's true. So there's no school uniforms. Yes, they're getting grubby, uh, muddy feet, mud under the fingernails, mosquito bites. Right now it's cicada season and so the kids are collecting the exoskeletons from the cicadas and they're trying to reach a thousand. Uh, Yes, they're grubby and so are the teachers. We also have no uniforms. We climb trees, we play in the mud, we catch animals. It's really fun. So, I mean, do you worry about health and safety? I mean, I know that people get so tied up in knots over it in, in, in the developed world. It's true. We do worry about health and safety, but in a different way. So my main job is convincing parents that dirt is a good kind of dirty, not a bad kind of dirty like germs, and that getting grubby and playing in the mud is actually healthy for their children. How was your experience during COVID-19 in Indonesia? Because, of course, we had a lockdown here. I know a lot about the lockdowns in the US and in Europe, but, but less so about Indonesia. So in Indonesia, we've been locked down until two weeks ago. National schools were not open for two complete years. Uh, Jungle School fought really hard all the way to the capital government, the federal government, to get a discretion because we have no walls. We have no doors. We do have classrooms, but they're open space. And so we were able to get a discretion and continue to open. But national schools only opened two weeks ago. Wow, that is quite staggering. For for uh, I I did homeschooling for three months and it uh, my brain imploded. I cannot imagine what it's been like for parents there doing it for two years. I mean, it's been overwhelming. Absolutely staggering. Well, congratulations to you for managing to keep your school open and uh, congratulations for bringing a different style of education to Indonesia. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. That is Rio Gerzi, who is the owner and founder of the Jungle School in Jawa Tenga in Indonesia, closing our Ion Education program today. And what a great pleasure it has been.